Hello and welcome to Little Science Talks. I'm Heidi and most of you will know me from Little Science Co, formerly Science on a Postcard, which is a tiny business based in Aberdeen. I create modern and playful science merchandise so you can spark conversations and demonstrate that science is for everyone. Hello, and I'm Anna. I'm a marine biologist about to start work within renewable and environmental advice. And Heidi and I actually met last year after I wrote a blog post for her, opening up about my experience of having a baby during my undergraduate degree. So in our first season, we'll be looking at the experiences of first-generation scientists and how generational influences might shape their career choices. We'll also be having conversations with people to dig deep to find out what the current hurdles are, how science can be an accessible career choice, no matter your background. So every two weeks you'll hear us talking to a different scientist or researcher. Uh, we already have a few guests lined up, but if you're listening to this and you think you or someone you know might be able to give us a different perspective or experience, please do get in touch. Uh, you can DM us on Instagram and Twitter, which are both at littlescienceco, or you can email us heidi at littlescienceco.com. Hello and welcome to Little Science Talks. This is our first episode of season one and today we are joined by Sana Rayman. Sana, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Hi, um, my name is Sana. I'm from Glasgow, currently living in Edinburgh and I work as a trainee clinical associate in applied psychology. So very much in the psychology field, I guess for some context I'm 24, so I still feel like a baby in my career. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's a quick intro into me. I think we all feel like babies in our careers. I'm 29 yeah. and I'm still like, yeah, no, not not doing it. I had a conversation with my mum this morning and she was like, are you still going to uni? And I was like, I work there now. Like, it's <laughs> not quite the same mum. Yeah, I think Heidi and I were talking about me even having a baby and still feeling like a baby. <laughs> I think we're all just winging it, like all of us, all the time, just winging it. And the older you get, you just realise more people around you are winging it too. I think what's scary is like, whenever someone talks about when you graduated and that was like seven years ago 10 years ago that's pretty terrifying yeah that's getting me right in the oh god what's happening my partner just turned 30 as well and that was just enough of it like oh god although the past year hasn't really counted you know we can just take away 12 months I like that yeah we're due back a year yeah sure so I'm, I'm actually just going to be 28 now and you can just be 23 summer so we're good <laughs> amazing <laughs> Excellent. It was the year of time. <laughs> so I guess in this episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about your experiences getting into STEM. So I know that you're, you're based in sort of psychology field, which is an area of STEM that I don't know a huge amount about. So I'm looking forward to, to learning a bit from you from there. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of your career? So where have you where have you been and how have you got to where you are now? Definitely. So I guess it all kind of starts with, you know, psychology as your base. So I did psychology as my undergrad and it was accredited by the BPS, so British Psychological Society. Um, and that's quite important if you ever want to move on to actually doing anything where you're qualified, if you're treating clients, things like that. So that was my undergrad. And then I didn't really do much during uni in terms of, you know, extracurriculars or um, jobs that were relevant to my degree. I think I was quite focused on surviving and that's definitely what happened during undergrad and then after undergrad I kind of came away from psychology thinking I wasn't going to pursue it and this is the kind of problem I foresee with the area is that there's kind of lots of negativity and that's because it's quite a long road to actually achieving say like a clinical psychologist role or something where you're you've got a doctor at the beginning of that title and it's not often talked about until you're kind of in first year or you're you're applying for your psychology degree so 
on the surface, yeah, you've just graduated, you've done four years of psychology, you've got all this knowledge and research behind you, but actually you're not qualified to do anything other than have a sort of BPS accreditation to say you can do something if you want to. <laughs> so off the back of that, you you probably will want to do a master's just to help stand out from the crowd. And if you want to pursue something psychology-wise, you're looking at doing a doctorate at some point. But then to go on to that doctorate, you need lived experience, you need professional experience. So I had decided that, nope, it was far too much of a long road for me. I'm not going down that road. I'm not doing four years of undergrad, you know, a year out to save our master's, a master's, and then, you know, three, four years working in jobs and then a three-year doctoral sort of training program. It felt like a lot. And I guess I was like quite focused on enjoying 20s and trying to make money in my 20s and not want to be really sort of in low-paying jobs for a really long time. So I stepped out of it after undergrad and I decided I was going to do something else and actually ended up being project coordinator and eventually a project manager for an IT company, which is totally random. But one thing I've learned is that you can make anything sound transferable. And that's kind of what I did when I decided to come back to psychology. So I suppose the long road short is that I spent a year doing not health, not science, not psychology and missed it so much. So I ended up taking volunteering experience with the sick kids in a hospital in Edinburgh and then coming back to do a master's that was based in health science at Aberdeen. And then really naturally fell back into doing mental health research and psychology research. And that's why I'm doing the current training program that's also a master's currently. So had a range of experiences. I've worked for the Health and Minds um, in Edinburgh remotely. I've worked for a journal, Sexual and Reproductive Health Matters, for a little while as an intern, which is amazing. So kind of range of experiences, but definitely a looping background to, to the first step. Yeah, I was going to pick up on that as well, because I, when I when you sent over like your information and stuff before we started talking and I'd seen that you'd already you already had a master. So then you were doing this other one. And I was like, what? Is, how is she doing? Sleeper <laughs> <laughs> woman. Yeah. But like, how did you find the process of doing your first master's? So I guess when you said to like your family, I'm going to go back to uni and do this master's, what were they thinking? Like what it, what was their reaction? So I think I'm I'm super fortunate in that the master's I'm currently doing is I call it a master's because that's what you get when you finish, but it's also a paid program. So it's really unique. It's run by both Stirling and Dundee and NHS Education for Scotland, and I'm employed by NHS Lothian. So lots of input from different areas. So even though it's a second master's, I guess I'm not shelling out 10 grand this time and I'm being paid, which is amazing, especially in psychology where there's just so much association with sort of low paid, lower roles and, you know, to get to where you want to get to and making those sacrifices. So actually, I, I think it was kind of met with joy that I was actually going to be in a full time job for more than a year. It is a, it's a big thing, particularly when you've had to save up for the first one and then you're like, oh, God, now I need to do the second one. How am I going to sustain myself? How am I going to eat? the uniqueness of that program is really important as well. Like that must be a really good way to get various groups as well into a, into that sort of area, because if you're getting paid, obviously you've, you've not got that battle. Is it like quite a diverse cohort that you're in or is it just kind of, is it a small group? Like, tell me a bit about it. So I suppose it, I think it's diverse. And I say think because I've never met any of the other trainees other than seeing them on Microsoft Teams and Zoom and stuff. And a WhatsApp group. I think we're fairly diverse in that there's lots of people from different countries, which is really, really great. So that that's really nice to see. And I suppose in particular in terms of access, there are 40 of us this year, 
And I think that we had 350 applications. Um, last year, I think there was only 30. Um, it's actually been running for 15 years. It just doesn't seem to be really hugely heard of. But I think they're slowly trying to increase the number of trainees year on year to get more people into the workforce, to have more CBT therapists, to treat more people, ideally. So yeah, we're, we're increasing in number, which is really nice. And we're the biggest year we've had so far. And I think we might actually get to meet each other at some point in the year with some face-to-face teaching. We do a week of teaching every month and then we're just sort of on placement and studying with the rest of the time. When you first started that first master's, had anybody else in your family, like, did they have master's? Did they have experience in STEM? Like, what was your sort of background and, and upbringing like? That's a really good point. So I suppose um, I was... No, no one else had a master's and no one else had an undergrad in my family. So I was the first person in my little family to have gone to university and was the first person on my dad's side of the family to have gone to university as well. Actually, when I think a bit more about my parents' sort of attainment, I think my dad barely finished high school and my mum sort of started college but dropped out. So they had never been, which is perhaps why it was more of a push for me to go to university. I suppose as a disclaimer, I was also really fortunate to have gone to private school but that also maybe comes with a bit of difficulty in that there was lots and lots of pressure to do well. There was never any conversation about not going to university. That was not an option. And kind of related to that, I suppose that there was perhaps more pressure to study something that was STEM, something that was either STEM business or you know law, because I came from a South Asian background and your education is generally important because your job is incredibly important. It's important to be financially stable, to look after your family, to possibly look after your parents when you're older, or at least that was the experience of the community and culture that I came from. So there was never any conversation about, you know, pursuing drama or arts or anything like that. So I never actually considered anything out with those kind of subject areas. I think I briefly considered, you know, perhaps social work or speech and language therapy, but came to where I am now very much with sort of the cultural background that I'm I'm from as well. And that kind of pressure to go to uni to do well and you need to do well in school to get to uni as well yeah I think there's there's quite a big not necessarily a stigma but I think you phrase it as a push and I do think that's right like my mum didn't go to uni and she was there was never a question that I wasn't going to uni because there was just this like well normalization of it of yeah that's what you do like the people in your school are going to uni so you're going to uni too where are you going to go rather than it being are you going to go it was always a where are you going to go what are you going to study sort of thing um so I do think that is kind of Maybe it's like a thing that like a subconscious thing in parents' minds when they haven't gone. They're like, right, we'll we'll give you a little nudge and maybe help you along that way. Perhaps parents think about the opportunities they might have had if they had gone to university and, you know, they want the best for us really naturally. And that's perhaps why they're so keen for us to not be restricted in the way that they feel like they might have been restricted. And, you know, for us to have an amazing future and no glass ceiling and what better way to ensure that, I suppose, was perhaps the mindset at that point when you know you did need a degree to get certain jobs yeah definitely I wanted to tap in a little bit as well because you mentioned your South Asian heritage and I think when we'd spoken earlier you'd mentioned like your gender as well you'd been quite a sort of force for you know women in STEM and and thinking about um, representation that way rather than it just being like a heritage thing which parts of that are you able to unpick that a little bit about you know how your parents and your family might have reacted to things was it because you're a girl was it because you're from a South Asian background like is is there any kind of are you able to unpick it I guess so I suppose kind of yeah um I, 
think I was always really encouraged to pursue science or a degree of sort of that kind of stability and a profession that would really give me a stable future and, you know, stable finances and a good home life and something that was perhaps good to be done part time when I became a mother. That was definitely the conversations that were being had at the time. And I remember kind of being steered away from perhaps certain subjects that would have been seen as more masculine at the time. So something perhaps closer to engineering that maybe would have been too demanding on what would have been mum life or something that would have taken up too much time, wouldn't have left me enough time to, you know, cook dinner or something like that. I'm, I'm kind of breaking it down to, you know, the real basics of what kind of things would be going through their heads. But that was that was quite evident, I think, in the ways in which I was encouraged to pursue some things and not others. But it was actually what was not said that kind of pushed me towards psychology. So going way back, I think the, the original reason for pursuing psychology was actually because my little brother, um, who is maybe around, I guess, 13, now 12, 13, around 10 years ago, we actually adopted him into our family. So I ended up getting lots of exposure to social workers and what it was like to be in contact with a looked after child and then eventually speech and language therapy because he had some difficulties. And so I started to look into, I've never heard of these health professionals before because they just didn't come into my world. Is that something I could have a look at? Looked at social work, looked at speech and language, and then found speech and language quite related to developmental psychology, one of the branches. So I pursued psychology sort of off the back of that. But I think what brought me after spending a year out psychology back into it was actually the cultural side. So I suppose it's the what's not said that brought me back. And there's just not really conversation about your mental health when, well, in my experience, when you're from certain communities. So I'm British Pakistani, I'm from a South Asian community, and I suppose I will tend to talk a lot about South Asia instead of British Pakistani. So I've never actually had the pleasure of being to Pakistan. So a lot of my sort of influences turn to tend to mix in a little bit with different areas, India, different regions, things like that. And growing up, you just didn't ever hear the words anxiety or depression. No one ever spoke about your emotions or your feelings. And that was just my experience of it. And so I think that over time, I started to realize that I actually didn't want that to be the case or not to continue to be the case for, you know, like future, future individuals that were actually having difficulty with these areas and would therefore really benefit from input from professionals, from whether that's research scientists looking at how to do, you know, how to better treat individuals that were from diverse backgrounds or actually just getting help from an individual that's maybe from a diverse background themselves. So I kind of realized I wasn't hearing any, I hadn't heard any of those words. I hadn't seen anyone that looked like me that worked in this field. And I think the first time I ever did was when I'd already decided to pursue psychology. And I met a family friend who was a trainee on the clinical sort of doctoral program which was really great to start to speak to someone about what that involved. So I think for me, it kind of comes back to wanting to add like my coin to like the big sort of foundation of representation, because I just don't think that it's there. And there's a sense of comfort in seeing or being with what's familiar. We like the familiar as human beings. It helps us to feel safe. It helps us to feel secure. And so I would really like to start to contribute to that, to be one brown face and a sea of not so brown faces that work in mental health and work in psychology and work in primary care. And so I think that that's the thing that kind of keeps driving me to keep going with coming back to psychology, with trying to pursue and get to where I want to go. And it's to improve that. 
Um, and I guess that kind of touches on the work that I did with the um, the journal, Sexual and Reproductive Health Matters. Half of that was great experience, but half of it was just to have my name associated with the words sexual and reproductive, because those are not things that are comfortably typically spoken about in perhaps a South Asian home. And it's not even yeah. taboo, it's just not really yeah. acceptable, to be honest. So part of it is you know, I want to get experience working for an academic journal. Wouldn't that be amazing? And maybe I could do some work and it could get, you know, shared somewhere or published somehow. But it's actually also to just start to be someone that can start to have conversations with other people from where I'm from about your sexual health, about the fact that you have rights. And if you have these difficulties, you know, there's actually people you can talk to. You don't kind of need to suffer in silence or you shouldn't ever have to. So I think it's the lack of communication from perhaps my cultural experiences that keep bringing me to want to pursue this line of work. I just had a question pop up about the the whole sexual health, like stigma, I suppose, in the like in the community, because I I imagine you'd have some reactions from people around you, uh, just like talking about it, because like I come from a, a Russian background and it's kind of the same there that you know depression and anxiety and burning out doesn't really exist and you know it's it's kind of seen as you know weak at times if you do and there's a little bit of a stigma as well of um sexual health and and all of that so just really curious to hear how the reactions were yeah I think still in early days yet so I haven't really perhaps had the chance because I actually did start to work for the journal during the pandemic so I think it's been quite limited in terms of really starting to go like deeper into those conversations and I think that it's still quite difficult because still to this day to start to try and have those kind of conversations you're going to come up against a barrier and I think it's it's really hard and difficult I just don't think we're there to have verbal conversations but I think even just starting to contribute to like literature and articles and research to have all of that out there to have things like online support groups to have different websites to have different charities popping up but hopefully with the increased presence of doing things like talking really openly about your sexual reproductive health about your mental health related to culture and start to challenge some of those barriers some of those stigma as well that will hopefully start to normalize what's going on for a lot of people so that ideally over time you start questioning it less or at least the individuals that would question the appropriateness of speaking about any of this kind of conversation any of these topics that will hopefully naturally take a bit of a decline I said I think it's it's very it feels like baby steps and to even have I guess worked for them at this stage or to have interned them with them for a, a small amount of time it's almost quite a lot to even just put like put on my LinkedIn the fact that you know I interned with them for four months and quite proud of that I mean I didn't do anything groundbreaking with them by any means it was very much you know sort of critiquing research and like giving them reports and things like that but just to start to be associated with the organization with their name it feels really great and it you know to be able to meet younger individuals that are from different backgrounds and cultures and start to talk to them about what I did one summer what I did during my master's and what I learned and get their take on it is really nice but I think it's hard because you're always going to come up against a bit of a barrier particularly with older generations where it might just remain difficult to have those for a little while but we can still work in other areas to continue to improve it yeah I think it's important as well like as you said even just to be there just to be seen in research because 
I say this because as a bit of context, I guess my like day job in my adult grown-up life, <laughs> uh, I, I work in research and a lot of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment is on inclusivity in clinical trials and trying to get more representative population. So a patient population in the trial should just look like every member of society, but it doesn't. <laughs> it never does. It always looks like a group of white middle class, usually approaching retirement age people. And that I think is is all really down to the fact that we don't have representation in research because every time I'm trying to like write a grant application for something like that, I'm thinking, I don't want the whole research team to be white. And then you you kind of go on this awful journey where you're like, oh, who can I think of to work with who might have this experience? And then you don't want to be, you know, going to people because they're brown, because yeah. <laughs> that's not where you want to go. You, you just want everyone to be available and, and happy and, and able to, to work in an area where they want to work. So I think yeah, as you said, like just being that representative face is so important because you then, yeah, other people looking at your LinkedIn might be thinking, oh, maybe I could intern with, with that journal. Maybe I could intern with another journal that maybe is a little bit more taboo or something. It's, yeah, I think it's just, it's super important and yeah, absolutely good on you. I know that if I was even thinking of like interning with a sexual health journal, I would like, I know that I would blush telling people. <laughs> so yeah, good for you. <laughs> giggle and blush <laughs> I think that what you said about about that is so interesting about how your samples often are you know older white males particularly for like what are the reasons for that is it because they generally have more time do they retire earlier do they have higher paying jobs where they have more time to spend on these things and I think that that relates a lot to why clinical psychology is not diverse enough and we've got a lot more to do in that area and it's why I like talk about how the the road for psychology is so long and it's so off-putting because you also have no guarantee that all of these you know hours and years that you're putting into all of these different jobs will actually guarantee you a place on say the clinical doctorate to then be a clinical psychologist and part of that problem is that there are lots of roles that have been made that are voluntary roles but they often Mm. come close to what paid part-time role would be so quite a popular one is the assistant psychologist role it's kind of hailed as the gold standard to like almost guarantee you a gold ticket to get into the doctorate and a lot of organizations or universities have created an honorary assistant psychologist role but to be able to take that role you need to be wealthy enough to give up half a day or a day of your time sometimes it's more two days so you start to get what is a very different picture in your in your workplace in your you know psychology field of individuals who are from a wealthier background who can afford to take time off who can afford to only work three days a week and do two volunteering to then get into the doctor one day and what ends up happening is your workforce becomes it becomes middle class it becomes generally quite white and I suppose that's it's generally a bit of an off-putting influence in terms of even trying to crack into you know a future as a clinical psychologist which means you've got even less diversity because you're you're stopping before you've even climbed the first rung on the ladder because you're like what's the point yeah totally understand and I guess that then plays into the taboos and the the lack of sort of openness and transparency around mental health because if there's not somebody that looks like you in that clinic when you go get help suddenly you might feel oh god I'm I'm just the only one in my community that is suffering or that is you know experiencing this and so I'm not going to talk about it because it's embarrassing or it's stigmatized and it's just not something that I want to share with people. So it's almost like a vicious cycle of there isn't enough diversity. There aren't enough you know, diverse faces in the workforce. Therefore, the patients are not diverse enough. The whole design of the service then fails, essentially. And it, that's that's exactly what I'm finding in research is 
all of the trials are essentially built, designed, conducted, run by white middle class people. And then we get shocked why they're full of white middle class people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'll um, tell you why, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) I found that through doing the current program I'm on, I've naturally found myself paying a lot more attention to, you know, why does culture and diversity matter when we're delivering therapy? I mean, we should treat everyone as equals. We should, you know, go on the clean slate every single time. Is that practitioner psychologist or is that their therapist and so why would you want to bring culture diversity or religion or sexuality into the room and um there's an individual i think that they're american and they have the surname hayes and um they have a book on sort of approaching cognitive behavioral therapy with a cultural or diverse approach and they give this really nice case study where they have this psychologist in America who's a therapist and they're treating a South or let's say an East Asian client. And the East Asian client's quite depressed and they come in with lots of difficulty, which is, seems to be fueled by lots of arguing at home with their parents. And the therapist is like, you know, be independent. Like you should really challenge the arguments happening to your mum, like and your dad, you know, really, really try, maybe move out, like, and tries to really encourage them to do things that are related to, you know, being really independent, being really individualist. Perhaps the the client actually finds that that's really disruptive, or that really is a sort of mismatch with their own ideals, their own beliefs, and that would cause a lot of pain at home. And then they start to lose trust or faith in that therapist, and then they don't actually have a good treatment outcome. And I suppose if you had a more culturally sensitive approach to that, you would have assessed what their what their diverse um, needs are, what their beliefs are, what their religion and culture is. And realize that actually they're they come from a collectivist community. Family is really important. Staying together in the family home really important. You know, having a sort of letting it go attitude instead of a confrontational one. That's also really important. So the culturally diverse therapist would come in and actually maybe suggest say some techniques to help them release anger or aggression or some conflict resolution strategies instead of doing things like saying. You should move out. You should do this. You should do that. Let's let's look at how to help you and only you. And they kind of dismiss the wider picture. So I think that over this year, I've started to really understand the importance that diversity plays, even when we should be taking a bit of a blank slate to our therapy. And that you know, and as individuals, we're just too complex to treat. Um, you know, yeah. based on our expectations or even what we what we think someone will present as a difficulty into the room. I guess as well, the people that are often saying, like, let's treat with a blank slate approach, to me, they're usually white (laughs) because they assume that the blank slate is white. And so they're like, well, you know, this this is the baseline. This is the majority. And instead of then, you know, reframing their view of the majority is not everyone, it's just a majority. Like, there's still loads of other people. (laughs) That, I think, is it's just telling of, of the way that medicine and psychology and research the whole every area of stem really particularly the the health areas and aspects of it are, are just riddled with privilege aren't they it's just yeah okay baseline is white let's let's work from there and it just doesn't work for everyone yeah and it's hard to go against you know your upbringing and your cultural and, and the whole thing like you can go and confront your parents like that if that's not what you've grown up with but then if you're told go confront them, go tell them you're moving out, you're leaving them, you know, it's not going to work. So it's actually really opened my eyes to this. <laughs> yeah. It must be a very difficult situation to be in when you are that that client, when you've got somebody, a psychologist on one side, because then you're almost, you're building like 
but you're between a rock and a hard place because neither of them are giving you the, the good treatment outcome that you need to then make sure that your family life is settled and therefore you're settled. It's so hard because there's been some research as well, which I can't cite because it's just sort of generally been taught to us, you know, on slides with bullet points without any citations on as to where that's come from. And it talks about why we might not be, you know, taking a diverse or cultural approach to assessing and treating our clients. And it, it despite the fact that it wasn't referenced or anything, it was actually so refreshing to see on paper what is the truth. And it's that we're so scared of offending our, our clients and our patients. We don't ever want to cause them further distress by saying the wrong thing at any point. We don't know enough necessarily about their culture or or their beliefs to feel like we can confidently navigate the field. We're perhaps too blinded by our own biases to even consider the fact that this is something we should be doing. Um, and it's just quite, as I said, quite refreshing to see someone actually say that it makes us really uncomfortable to talk or ask someone about their culture when we don't really have much of an understanding of it. But then even if you do have an understanding of it, each individual's experience can be completely different. So you do need to explore each time. But it's just quite nice seeing that, you know, you're not the only one who's, who's uncomfortable navigating these awkward conversations at times. But it does need to happen. Yeah, they are. They are awkward conversations. And as well, I think, as, as again, as part of the research that I'm doing, I keep doing this, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is relevant, I swear. So I'm, I'm writing a paper at the moment about why we should report ethnicity in trials, because at the moment there's no UK standard for it. There's no like government push or mandate or anything. There is in the US, but they do it terribly. So I just don't want us to replicate the crap that they're doing. I think for us, the things that I'm talking about all the time with people are like, Yes, but you can have that conversation. We can be open. You tell people about your culture and they might tell you about theirs. And if they're not comfortable, that's okay. But just plant the seed, you know, make make that relationship or start to build that relationship, I guess. And I guess with psychology, it's even more important because it's it's such a personal connection, I guess, with your therapist as to whether that treatment outcome is successful or not. And I just, I can't even like imagine not understanding about the person in front of you, I guess. Like, do you, when you're doing like a consultation, obviously you haven't done things yourself at the moment because you're still in training, but how does that initial like consultation process go? Are you supposed to, you know, just find out about them or is it their culture and their background and stuff too? So I suppose um, this is actually quite helpful to note, but as a trainee on the program, my specialty that I'm training in is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason for that is that it's what we have most research looking at. It's with so many RCTs that have had a look at the efficacy of CBT for a range of different disorders. And because it's generally shown to be the most sort of effective and fairly cost effective, it's quite short term brief. It's, you know, anything from eight to 20 sessions, as opposed to years of, um, you know, psychoanalysis and Freudian stuff like that it means that it's a good option for the NHS which you know is quite relevant since we're in Scotland so as a trainee CBT practitioner I'm quite lucky in that I take a lot of my sessions myself so I'm quite heavily supervised but I often take a lot of my sessions on my own and the process is to have an assessment and then your treatment and then your discharge so for me, my assessment could be anything from one to three sessions. And I usually like to have my first session be about, you know, the main difficulty right now, what's going on, what impacts it, how frequent is it, what, what's going on, what kind of consequences is that having for you in your daily life? And then I go on to background for your second one. And then the third session, we usually do functional analysis, which is basically a micro analysis of all the things that happen in one particular time. So we'll say, 
tell me about the last time that you had a really low mood and we look at what was going on in your body in terms of physical reaction, what happened before that, what were the thoughts, what were the emotions going on and what did you do to cope with that? And so somewhere in there, you should somehow be assessing your client, you know, culturally, which means that CBT is based on all these RCTs that have generally been done in Western countries. They have not really been done as much in terms of the research we have from it coming to us back in the 80s until now, but that is starting to slowly change. So I suppose the issue is that I don't personally think that we're taught enough about how to assess someone's cultural background in psychology generally and CBT at the moment, but there are lots of books and resources out there. So at some point during that assessment, you should start to like ask them what are their religious beliefs, what are their cultural beliefs, try and pick up on, on different things. If they start to talk about a family, well, what, what does family mean to you? You know, how does that dictate your everyday living or is that quite important? Do you have lots of dependence on each other? Except I'll ask in a bit more of an open question way and yeah. not so closed questions. So I suppose there is opportunity throughout the assessment to start to take a cultural approach to assessing an individual. And as you said, you kind of can't imagine not doing that because psychology is the study of our human mind, how the human mind develops, how it works, and you know how to assess and treat it when things are, are difficult and not going to plan. How can you do that when someone's culture usually informs their identity? Because then you start to fail to actually be able to understand and treat your client because you're essentially missing half of the picture. If you don't know that a lot of their beliefs are are there because of their their cultural background, or their religious background, or their sexuality, of of their you know gender expression, anything. So yeah, I think that it's quite difficult because I think we forget sometimes that culture has this integral role in defining who we are and psychology is how we work so they should be like very much meshed together but they're just often not seen that way yeah and hopefully things will start to change I guess I've been saying this for the past like what 10 years hopefully things will start to change (laughs) Um, but really hopefully they will (laughs) and I guess seeing faces like yours and you know you doing bits of outreach and engagement like this will be hopefully a nice starting point for people that are maybe listening or you know seeing you in other areas to say oh maybe I could do that I look like her maybe I could do that exactly hopefully and if it doesn't I'll just I don't know start marching down Princess Street screaming about sexual (laughs) health and women's reproductive rights and your mental health if that doesn't work in 20 to 30 years time but I think what would your mum do if you did that God god knows yeah I think that there is more research being pushed out there's more attention we're hopefully trying to take on a workforce that is more diverse and reflective of the population that we're trying to treat and then ideally it all gets better but I suppose some people would argue that's quite naive even though it's what we need to happen at one point you're also just human you can't as a even as a clinical psychologist you can't possibly know everything about every culture and every little nuance it's hard and you can't just spend 24 hours a day reading all these papers and books so so it's a fine balance as well I feel yeah coming from a whole different background but (laughs) I guess as well it's when when things get better I'm not I'm not going to say if because I'm optimistic um but when things get better it's it's not all on you and it and it shouldn't be all on you because like Anna said, you are, you know, we're all human and it, yes, you can, you maybe know the South Asian experience in Glasgow particularly well, but maybe it's slightly different in Bradford or Edinburgh or Aberdeen. Exactly. Like it's, 
yeah yeah no but no two people are going to be the same and I guess just we do our best in what we know and how we can how we can help people that way that's the the um, typical flaw of all research, isn't it? That it's just not quite generalizable to the whole population. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, you've just like life flashing before my eyes. Yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Just circling back to the to the mum stuff, and you know, being able to to provide, but then also having to have the option of working part time, so not taking on something that's too demanding. Did you ever have like a certain profession in mind? before you settled on on psychology or was there like other options in a way that you like role models around you that kind of juggled everything at once and successfully did all this I think that my family were really keen for me to be a pharmacist and I mean crazy keen um I tried to look up some research to see if there's like some prevalence research or like anything to back up you know encouragement with South Asian children pursuing pharmacy and it just seems to be you know science in in general but she was really keen to be a pharmacist I think it's because we had a lot in the family and the hours are good and it's you know they're accommodating for having children and stuff I think at the time it depends on the culture that you you grow up in but it can depending on your own and the kind of background you come from I certainly felt very restricted in terms of the ex- expressing my own freedom and pursuing whatever the hell I wanted. So I think I was just so focused on doing the degree I had decided to do and moving on with that. I, I did toy with being a sort of a teacher at one point or a primary teacher. And I, I, I guess as school went on and as I started to learn more about what psychology was and, you know, learn that it wasn't someone on a sofa and you asking them how they feel for hours at a time that um once I once I broke past that that actually this is something I really want to do and I I knew I know generally that psychology can be really accommodating in terms of having a life out of psychology don't get me wrong it can be hard to keep boundaries and to not spend you know hours into the night looking into a particular case but a lot of individuals I know will have days where they're actually only there four days a week or three days a week and it seems as though they're able to maintain that financially um as well which is great so I did have in the back of my mind that it would be a career that seemed to be quite flexible and hadn't really given too much thought over to that. So I suppose that would be pleasing to family that it was factored in somewhere. But to be honest, I think I was just so keen to do what I wanted, regardless of the impact to family or elsewhere, because at the end of the day, you know, you have to look after yourself. And I think it's so hard when you come from a culture that's so collectivist, perhaps because, you know, it's a South Asian or East Asian country where there's no NHS and there's no support network for becoming elderly. And so you rely on your younger family to look after you. You know, there's, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but there's sort of Asian concept of filial piety. And that's why things like tiger parenting are so intertwined, you know, really pushing your kids to achieve. So they do well, they get good jobs, they make money, and then they look after you when you're, you know, parents that are becoming children again when you're older. So I think I had to start to learn that, you know, South Asian but I'm British I'm living in Scotland I'm in Glasgow and eventually you know moving away at some point and I guess it's hard when you're kind of caught between culture sometimes but I was very much veering more towards the, the Scottish side of life. Yeah I think it's the thing that kind of jumped out to me there was that it was just like an assumed thing that you would have a family like it wasn't a, a question of are you going to have kids do you want to have kids do you want to you know is that something that's on your agenda and I think particularly in different cultures that's tricky so I've been very lucky in that like my mum now has a grandson and that's my dog 
Like, <laughs> and she's fully into that. She's like, how's, how's my boy doing today? And she's, she expects photo updates. Like I have, like I've had a baby <laughs> and there's no pressure from her whatsoever. Like it, it just never has been. But I know from friends in, in other cultures and with other backgrounds and stuff, like we're approaching 30 and suddenly it's a bit like, right, well, time's ticking. What's going on? How did you manage to deal with that? Because I guess lots of people want to have families, but maybe you don't. Maybe you do. Like, how did you tackle that? I think it's it's a hard question. I suppose my situation is a bit different and I quite openly talk about this. But um, when I kind of pushed back and was quite adamant about studying what I wanted to study, doing what I wanted to do, pursuing whatever career or whatever, that kind of translated into other areas as well of life. So generally being independent, doing what I want, which is not necessarily something that from my experience, a lot of South Asian girls are able to do. Sometimes it can be quite restrictive. There can be a lot of parental pressure and things like that. So I kind of ended up taking it on my own and actually moved out like at 17 and moved through to Edinburgh. And I'm generally really independent. And I managed to do that because I only rely on myself sort of financially. And I very much have people in my life that, you know, mean a lot to me and and I'm happy to have them there and are very supportive. And I suppose part of that is hard because there's not really a safety net when it comes to financial matters or just, you know, some emotional support. But it means that I get to live without any pressure ever, which for me is quite a big deal. So I guess that kind of helps to frame things a little bit in terms of it was really tricky for me to pursue psychology because there's never a guarantee. And having kind of started to slowly move away from a life that I wasn't happy with at all, that I felt was controlling or brought you back into pursuing certain things that I didn't want to pursue, it made it that much harder because... I guess there was doubt surrounding everything about doing it on my own, about pursuing things. And when I say doing it on my own, I say that with a caveat because I've been so privileged to have gone to an all girls private school, to have had support from family for so, so many years. I think I got to a point where I weighed up that versus the emotional trauma, call it if you will, or the emotional difficulty of having to balance that. And I think it helps that I'm now training as a sort of practitioner psychologist, but you realize that there is more to life and that you cannot live life based on what other people's expectations are. So I luckily have none of that pressure and that's really, really nice. And it means I don't even have to think about what so many people have to think about in terms of how to deal with, you know, the in-laws or mom and dad this week or next week, or how to put them off. And, you know, you've been married now for one years or two years and everyone's like, where's the baby? I like that we're getting to a place where it's no longer acceptable to ask someone what their baby plans are because it shouldn't ever be. So I am very lucky. I don't have to. And that has certain drawbacks. Yeah, I I really do feel for others that are not in that position. It's a really difficult life to live and and a horrible choice to make, I think, because as you said, it's not just like a you know, I'll, I'll be on a low paid job for a little while and then I'll be okay. Like it's not, it's the emotional difficulties as well. Like that is, that is tough stuff. And yeah, I'm guessing a bit of, a bit of psychology probably helped with that. (laughs) A bit of like a, okay, other people have stuff as well. This is how I could, you know, techniques that I can use to help myself and that kind of thing. Yeah. It definitely helps you to keep grounded. It helps you. And that's why like there are reasons I love social media and that's for pursuing a career in psychology and, you know, dealing with your own personal difficulties is that there are so many online support forums for all sorts of stuff. And I mean, all kinds of stuff. And it's just so nice to be able to actually connect with other people that are going through the same journey as you or trying to get that same job as you, especially in an area that's so murky and so gray. So yeah, the 
that when social media is good, it's fantastic. Social media is also excellent at showing what you bake. Can I just like bring that up for a second? <laughs> so Sana's Instagram is closed. And I was like, is this creepy if I just like accept, like try and follow her now? So I tried and it worked. But, but the meringues that she was making, holy cow. Thanks. My God. I was like, immediately, I was like, okay, you need to send me a recipe now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Those were the first time I'd made them. Oh, they looked incredible. <laughs> Which is why I said to you, I am a scientist in my approach to baking. I research everything, weeks of planning, got all my equipment, all my materials, doing some test ones, and now we're going for the final show, the final trial. The final show was freaking perfect. So yeah, Thank the you. scientific approach, totally worth it. Excellent. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to like actually maybe bring in my science to my baking because that might explain why it's not great. So we wanted to um finish up by just sort of asking you for like a top tip or a pearl of wisdom for you to give our listeners something that you've learned or wish that you've learned that you would have learned earlier my big tip comes from recently being on recently no pre-pandemic being on a holiday I went on holiday for two weeks to LA in America and I started meeting people who were late 20s late 30s and were doing their bachelors for the first time and it kind of hit me because when they told me there was just no reaction like that was normal and it was so refreshing to see people take life at a normal slash their own pace. And it made me reflect on how I've spent so much time like running towards the next goal or the overall goal. And I don't give myself enough time to breathe during the jobs that I had. So, you know, when I was a senior project coordinator, project manager, total rip off, whatever, it sucked. And all I was doing was looking at what are all of the voluntary jobs I can get and all of the paid experiences I can get to get my doctorate, to get onto a master's. Equally, when I took a support worker role and was making even less, it I never took time to enjoy the fact that I was learning incredible stuff for the first time. And I would lose that first time, you know, shininess completely once it was over and once I'd moved on. And also as you move through life, you get more responsibility and it, I think it naturally becomes a little bit less enjoyable. And there's there's sometimes more more stress associated with that. So what my my takeaway was, was seeing people so happy and proud to be doing things later in life and that there's no reason anyone should achieve anything in their 20s. The dream job no longer exists in your 20s and that's okay. So I think take life at a slower pace that can often help. I think the last year has kind of taught us that and just try and enjoy things in the moment more. That's so cheesy, but it's really what I learned. And I wish I had not taken things slower, but not felt so upset or worried, you know, every other month or every other week where I just felt like I wasn't going anywhere and I was never going to achieve anything in the same year that I was turned down for a post at like band four. I got onto this program, which is band six. And I now have something that will hopefully once I qualify, be a career that I can sustain until I want to do my doctorate. So it just goes to show that sometimes you need a bit of perseverance and patience. Definitely. I think that whole going at your own pace is thing, like it just, I don't even know how we got here as a society where it's like you go from being at school, like you choose your A-levels or whatever the equivalent is in Scotland, hires and advanced hires and stuff. At such a young age, like when I was looking back, I was like, oh my God, how did I just assume that I could do all of those qualifications in two years and then did them and was really sad the whole time and then went straight to uni and then straight to a PhD and like all these internships and like this fast pace of life when you're literally like a baby. <laughs> and now we're like, yes, we're in our twenties, but it's almost like we're at a career stage that 
people 10 years older than us would look at and go, yeah, that's cool. Like, good job. We've, we've done it. But we're kind of sitting here being like, oh God, we're exhausted. <laughs> How did that happen? How did we even get here? It's like a big whirlwind. And I guess just as a sort of plug to a book that I'm reading at the minute that might be of interest. It's by Anne, Anne Helen Peterson. It's called Can't Even. Um, and it's about millennial burnout. And it's basically about how boomers have <laughs> ruined our lives. <laughs> um, but it's, no, it's basically about like, it's very US focused, but um, it is still relevant about like how we're always on this, this big cycle of next thing, next thing. Where's the goal? What's the goal? What are you going to do forever? Rather than it just being like, okay, maybe you want to go on holiday today. Maybe you want to go exploring. Maybe you want to take a day off for the sake of just taking a day off. That is a really important thing. And that probably ties in quite well with your psychology background. Because I guess like you'll see it firsthand, like that burnout and the the mental implications of what could happen if people don't take it slow. That book sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to get it <laughs> because really it, that's literally, yeah, that, that was like my reflection that took me all of five years to get to in a book <laughs> because yeah, you, you put it so well and yeah, we have so much pressure and expectation that we attach to everyday life. It's so hard. Yeah, it is. It is really hard. And I'm glad that you recognised it at 24 because I didn't. <laughs> so yeah, good job on you being so young and recognising it. Jesus. I feel like I'm, I've been in a therapy session, like... <laughs> <laughs> massive weight lifted off my shoulders <laughs> we're just all gonna like go about our days like it's all right we're fine now <laughs> cancel our therapy session <laughs> we have had a great time with you it's been so interesting um and thank you so much for giving it your time yeah thank you so much for having me it's been really really nice it's been so refreshing and lovely to have a bit of normalcy if that's the right word during these weird as hell times and i can't wait to see what you guys do next so thank you so that was our first episode. Thank you so much to Sona for joining us and for sharing her story. So our next episode will be released in two weeks time. And as we're recording this, we don't really know who that will be with, but um, make sure you join us then to find out. Uh, and remember to follow us at The Little Science Co on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think of our first episode. Um, the new website has also just gone live about a week ago I think um, as you're hearing this and that will be at littlescienceco.com so uh, yeah have a little explore let us know what you think and I hope you like the new branding I think that went all right I think so too